0: Practicing Christian millennials believe that it is wrong to share your faith in hopes of another person believing what you believe. I thought that was fascinating. Because I'm used to just people being uncomfortable about sharing your faith, right? Right? Uh, but this is actually saying that there's a trend in our day uh, where, where younger people uh, not only struggle with sharing their faith, they're actually starting to believe that it's not even good. And this is no doubt, I think, just the outcome of the progressive kind of digital age that we live in. Because we live in a weird time, don't we? Where literally you can become the most informed and equipped and adamant about about how you see things. You have all the resources there for you to become the, 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 the highest learned and most excited about whatever it is you care about. And at the same time, right, at the same time, we have this serious, serious discomfort with declaring anything that may not be seen as inclusive or tolerant of other people's views. And so the result is young believers basically saying, well, yeah, I'm a Christian, and yeah, this works for me, but who am I to tell what to, to tell anyone else what to believe? Who am I to do that? Now, I don't think this church is filled with people who actually think you shouldn't do this. Most of us in here, I know this church pretty well, uh, most of us are more of the type that we just have a struggle with sharing our faith. It's it's difficult for us though we still value the fact that it is a command from scripture, a command straight from Jesus himself. This is the more realistic struggle for us. We're busy. We are pressured in this world. We have we have anxieties. We really love our comfort bubbles of hobbies and sports and family and home. All of which are valid to a degree. But Jesus invites us through the Great Commission to not just let these good things be good or to rob us of of the better things, the immense joy and calling to share with others the hope of Christ, to live joyously as those who have been set on the most important mission of all time, those who are to be going, those who have been called to go. This should be our mindset. This should be our life. This should be our attitude. This should be our intentionality behind every single thing that we do. And that is the nature of what it means to go. And so as we are doing uh, for this sermon series, we're actually going to stand in honor of the reading of God's word this morning together. So stand as we read Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20, and these will be on the screen, and we're going to read this aloud together, okay? So follow along. I'll read slowly and read aloud with your voices this passage together, okay? So here we go, Matthew chapter 28, starting at verse 18. Jesus came near and said to them, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. Awesome. Well done. Thank you. You can have a seat. This is our passage that we're going to look at over the next couple of weeks. And Brett opened this passage last week by talking about the great authority of Jesus. The authority that's been earned and the authority that's been given to him. And if you're like me, you've heard this passage preached often, right? I've heard this uh, passage preached with with the emphasis on just foreign missions, right? I've sat through many sermons where by the end of the sermon, I was like, I need to be a missionary. I need to go to Africa and be a missionary, you know, Uh, because they speak speak it with, it's just so compelling that we are called to go to all the nations. But I've also heard this passage preached um, with the emphasis on just as you are going, Whatever you're doing, if you're going to soccer practice, you're going to school, or if you're going to Africa, or whatever, you know, wherever you're going, whatever you're doing, that you would do it with gospel intentionality. So it makes it common, right? It spreads it out across your entire lives. However you've heard it preached, it was probably fitting. Whatever the emphasis was, it was probably fitting, because the nature of this word go in the original language is broad, It's broad. It it speaks to all proximities. It goes everywhere, whether it be right in front of your face or across the nations. This word go comes from the root word meaning passageway. And so this word really fits any context where there is a start and a destination. It's a journey. And that's not usually a term I like to speak about with faith. It sounds too like cushy or something. I don't know. It's just like your journey in the faith. But like that's kind of what it is. It's this journey, the start and this destination. I think what gives the journey meaning is how you go about it. But this is what it means to go, that in every aspect about you, that we would always be going with the mission of the gospel in mind. There's a very big difference between wandering and a journey, right? wandering is what vagabonds do as they just wander from here or there without any end or destination guiding their routes it's just wandering scripture isn't really fond of this concept of wandering though there are times i suppose uh, that it's essential in a christian life but more so this idea of a journey having a clear destination in mind and so you have a motivation you have an intentionality as you take each step this is the call of going That in all we do, we would do it intentionally, not aimlessly. Not aimlessly. Whether you get a permanent missionary call from the Lord to the jungles of Africa or you are heading to your third soccer practice of the week, the intention and the destination of this journey are the same and it encompasses it all. So, first, I want to just, I just want to use these two words, intention and destination, to kind of talk about what it means to go. And the first is intention. When it comes to the intention behind our going, as the Great Commission calls us to, we're talking about motive. We're talking about what is your reason. And I would love to be able to just say, you know, Jesus said it, so do it. I wish it was that easy. Um, But it's not that easy for me, and I don't think it's that easy for many of you. It's clearly not enough for many of us who know very well what Jesus says. But following him in obedience, especially when it's difficult, that's a, that's a hard thing, whether it comes to living out our faith or anything else, really. It remains a challenge. But my purpose today is not to coddle and justify our reasons for this. And so I'm, I'm like you, right? Um, I, I've had to invest in this for a week, and so I've felt the conviction, right? And, and I'm, if you're serious about the Lord, you might feel that this morning, too, because this is what we are called to do, is to be going, and I don't want to coddle the reasons, right? In the same way that a, uh, a doctor wouldn't walk into a room with a cancer patient and just refuse to tell this person that they have cancer because they're afraid of hurting their feelings, right? I just don't want, I want us to call out the facts a little bit today so we can identify the real issue when it comes to our obedience, obeying Christ when it comes to sharing our faith along with anything else. And so here is the issue. Here are the facts about obedience, Obedience to Christ proves our love for Christ. Obedience to Christ proves our love for Christ. Which means that if it is easy for us to neglect Jesus' commands because of our own issues, whatever they might be, then this is telling of our true love for him. Regardless of what we say, you can say you love Jesus all day long, and it means a little bit. But it only means a lot if it's backed up by the way you obey and this comes straight from Jesus' mouth. This is not something I'm making up, as hard as it is to hear at times. John 14, verse 15, Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commands. End of sermon, right? We don't need much more than that. But he says it again in verse 21 of the same chapter. The one who has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. John 14:23. if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And these are a few of very many references where Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commands. Now listen, if you're here and you know the word of God and can sense and feel at times God stirring in your life. But every time he stirs, whether it be through a sermon or or some other thing, you know, you're reading the Bible yourself or, you know, he just hits you at some point and there's something that he's stirring in your heart and you just know it. But then whenever that stirring gets crushed out by the weight of just your current fears and obligations and commitments and distractions and limitations, we need to know that the primary issue in this area is not our fear or our obligations or our commitments or our distractions or our priorities or our limitations. It is our love. It is our love that is an issue because we don't have it like we think we do. We don't love him like we think we do. We know people will do whatever they need to chase and invest in the things they love. We're in America. You have everything you need to chase what you love most. But often when it comes to faith, it is just really easy to convince ourselves for whatever reason of a few different fallacies when it comes to this. Fallacy number one is this, that speaking love is enough. If I just say that I love Jesus, then that should be enough. I'll do what I want, but at least I'll say that I love Jesus, right? This doesn't work in our practical relationships, and it doesn't really work with our relationship with Christ either. I mean, I love golf. I think you guys know that. Imagine I said to my wife, you know, I'm going to Florida. I'm going to try to make it on the mini tour. You know, I'm just going to try to go pro. I'm going to try to make it. But don't worry. Though I will be gone almost all the time, I will text you once a week and say, I love you, Kinsey. Would that work, Kenzie? No, it would not. You heard it from her mouth, and so I will not do it. And if it did work, then something's wrong with our relationship, I think. That would not be enough to convince her that my love for her is greater than my love for golf. The second fallacy that we give ourselves to a lot is that we just feel like we don't have the capacity for obedience of love. We don't feel like we have the capacity, right? Right? To take that stupid example, imagine I was in a horrible accident, right? Uh, I've played golf in South Carolina with my dad and my brother, and there have been times where you're, you know, there's a ball, and then there's an alligator, like, you know, 10 feet over here, because we're in Paris Island in South Carolina, and there's just water. Imagine that alligator took off both of my legs and both of my arms. Now, if that happened, and I said, I love to play golf, my love is still genuine. The problem is, I can't. I can't anymore, because I don't have any limbs, right? But this is, how, this is how Christians view obedience at times. We want to follow God. We say we follow God. We say we love Jesus. But when it comes to obedience, we feel disabled. We feel completely incapacitated to actually do what he wants us to do to say that we love him. I can't serve FBN Tots and FBN kids. I have enough kids of my own. I can't tithe because I'm already Short as it is. I can't read the Bible to my kids because when I get home, I'm just too tired after work. I can't share the gospel because I just don't know enough about Jesus to do it. I can't serve the church in any real capacity. I'm just too tired and bitter from everything that I did for the church 30 years ago. Whenever you say the word can't and he's calling you to something of obedience, you need to know that whatever that lie is that's in your head, that's straight from the pit of hell. That is straight from the pit of hell. That's exactly what the enemy wants you to think, to feel like you are incapable of doing what God is calling you to do. You have Jesus. If you have Jesus, then you have everything you need to live in obedience to what he has called you to do, and through that obedience, as hard or as easy as that might be, that is your love to Christ. That is how you prove your love. 2 Peter chapter 1 verse 3 says his divine power has given us everything required for life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. And no, that's not about hitting three-pointers or getting more birdies. Paul's writing that out of just this burden of contentment, of giving up and being uh, okay with really difficult hardships for the cause of Christ. He might call you to something difficult. Obedience isn't always easy, but he's already given you everything you need to do that. So for anything else to convince you that you can't, that you're disabled, that you're limbless in this situation, it's a lie. Now, as I prepared all of this, I I really just could not get Luke 7 out of my mind. There's this expression of love in this passage that I just, I could not shake it. So I want to share that with you today. And what I want to do is just read this story about a Pharisee and a sinful woman and Jesus' interactions with him. And and I want to share the story, and I'm going to ask at the end, what does the story teach us about love for Christ? So keep that question in your mind as I read this story, and then I'll, I'll share some notes about it, okay? Luke chapter 7, verses 36 through 50. Think about what this story teaches us about love for Christ. Then one of the Pharisees invited him, that is Jesus, to eat with them. He entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And a woman in the town who was a sinner found out that Jesus was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house. She brought an alabaster jar of perfume, very expensive, and stood behind him at his feet, weeping, and began to wash his feet with her tears. She wiped his feet with her hair, kissing them and anointing them with the perfume. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, notice that, he said to himself, not audibly and not loudly, but to himself, This man, if he were a prophet, would know who and what kind of woman this is who is touching him. She's a sinner. And Jesus replied to him. How did Jesus know, right? Because he's Jesus. He replied to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. He said, say it, teacher. A creditor had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. And since they could not pay it back, he graciously forgave them both. So which of them will love him more? "'Simon answered, I suppose the one he forgave more. "'You have judged correctly,' he told him. "'Turning to the woman, he said to Simon, "'Do you see this woman? "'I entered your house, and you gave me no water for my feet, "'but she with her tears has washed my feet "'and wiped them with her hair. "'You gave me no kiss, "'but she hasn't stopped kissing my feet since I came in. "'You didn't anoint my head with uh, olive oil, "'but she has anointed my feet with perfume, "'and therefore I tell you, "'her many sins have been forgiven.' That's why she loved much. But the one who is forgiven little loves little. And then he said to her, your sins are forgiven. And those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this man who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. That's a good story. That's a good expression of love from this woman. But what does this teach us about love for Christ? First thing I notice is this, that she was not at all concerned with the thoughts of men. Right? They were going to call her a sinner. She knew that. Um, They were going to call Jesus crazy. He knew that. She did not care. She walked, she entered in, and she expressed her love to Jesus regardless of what other people think. Think about that for your own obedience or your own love for Christ. Do you care what other people think? Are your perceptions of what other people will think louder than Jesus' voice in your own hearts? I also noticed this, that her love for Christ was sacrificial. Uh, she comes from a broken background, and she poured out alabaster perfume on his feet. It was costly. Not only that, it was humble in service. Did you notice how she only ever tended to Jesus' feet? Everything she did, whether it was she was washing, crying, kissing, uh, uh, pouring perfume and anointing, it was all on his feet. It's the Pharisees who want to sit eye level with Jesus. I'm up here with you. I want to have this intellectual conversation with you. It was her who was just bowed down at his feet the entire time. That's an expression of love, an awesome symbol of of just humble service to Christ. I also learned from, from this that it reaches to the emotions, to the depths of the heart. I mean, she's full of tears and vulnerability, certainly due to just the keen awareness of the sin in her own life, and it brought her to a place of emotional response, and conviction, and confession. I also noticed this, that she didn't say one word in the, entire, in the entire story, and yet Jesus forgives her sins. You know, there's a way to call upon the name of the Lord with your life and with your heart. And sometimes the expression of love is just so good that you don't need to say it, because Jesus already knows it, and he already feels it, because through our obedience, we love Jesus. And lastly, I'll say I noticed this, that her love was in proportion to her forgiveness. And I'll also say this, Simon's love was in proportion to his forgiveness. He didn't do anything. She did it all. He was cool having Jesus in his house, but that was about it. But she, in vulnerability and weakness and in conviction and in brokenness, and also at the same time simultaneously, in his beautiful forgiveness, can't leave his feet. This is a good, good story and expression of love. And it speaks to us and it speaks to this issue because I think there are many Christians who are totally fine having Jesus in their house. But they struggle with this sort of ongoing expression of love. We'll put the banners up and we'll put the wall signs up and... You know, make all of these homely decorations. But when it comes to this kind of expression of love, that's kind of missed. Well, how do we make this kind of expression of love? Of course, we don't have the physical body of Jesus with us. How do we do this? Well, through the way we love each other, through the way we love others, and through our obedience. Through our obedience, we anoint the feet of Jesus. Through our obedience, we weep with tears that wash his feet. Through our obedience... We, we humble ourselves and open ourselves to any place of sacrifice and cost and obedience that he might call us to. Why? Because he died on the cross for your sins, because he gave up himself completely so that you could have everything. And when you understand the gravity of your sin and how much you deserved hell and how much you are terrible when it comes to your nature compared to his and how much you need a savior, when you're fully aware of what you've been saved from, this is the natural response. This is the natural response. The sword of love, I think a lot of people just struggle knowing how, you know, it's a one-time thing at camp or it's a one-time thing, you know, at some point in time in your life. But then they don't, they don't ever revisit this. We never revisit the gospel and, and the sin that has, you know, consumed us and what God has saved us from. But this is so much a part of the Christian experience. It should be a discipline of ours to always be reminded and broken over what Jesus did for us. Because what that does is it reawakens us and rekindles us to obedience, to express our love to him. And if you're here, and maybe you've been claiming Christ, but it's been a loveless relationship, let's be honest. I really hope that you don't take all of this to mean, well, I'm just going to try harder this coming week, because that's not the answer. The answer is this. What you need to do is you need to hit the ground with your face, that you need to just go to the feet of Jesus in full humility, that you need to confess and repent your sin, your pride, and your arrogance. And everything else that you have done and be reminded of what he has saved you from. Because without this, you're not going to have love. Without this awareness of what he saved you from, you're not going to have an obedience of love that goes to uh, uh, the levels of sacrifice and cost and vulnerability and all of these other places. We need to confess, I mean, to have God's forgiveness only for personal salvation and then, and then for nothing else. I mean, this is to rob the gospel of its complete work to not only save us, but, but to also move powerfully through, through us into the lives of those who so desperately need Christ and who desperately need an escape from hell in torment, the torment that they're heading to. What you do with your priorities and distractions and commitments and obligations and resources from here on, those are secondary and completely dependent on your love. But whenever you love Christ, when you have that awakening in your heart and soul to remember what he saved you from, then all of your other things can come through that in obedience and those things can become wonderful places to show Christ that you love him. But some of us just need to be reminded and we need to respond with contrition. We need to just recall who we were before Christ. Recall the sin and the threat of hell and the hopelessness of the pit that just has gripped us until the mighty and scarred hand of Christ pulled us out. That God would create in us the same thing that Jesus had. John eight twenty nine, where he says, "Though the one who sent me is with me, and he has not left me alone, because I always do what pleases him." Notice the great commission of that, by the way. Jesus was a great commissioned guy. He was one who was sent. And he wasn't just sent, but he was also one who was never left alone by God. Same for us. He said, I'm with you always to the end of the age. And so what's the result? Pleasing the heart of God. This is our intention. Secondly, I want to talk about destination. I want to talk about um, um, where we are to go with this. What is the the going of our journey? What is the end of our journey? What is our purpose? What is our, our goal? What are we aiming for? In short, the answer is people. By the way, this is a great time for our baptism candidates to head back if you want. We have a baptism by the end of this day, which is really, really awesome. So they're going to go back and get ready while we, while we finish up. But in short, the destination of our journey as we go in the Great Commission is simply this. It's people. It's not heaven. Let me go ahead and just make sure that's clear. The destination of your journey is not heaven. Heaven is the prize prize. For a job well done. Heaven is the prize. People are the destination. We cannot get so carried away living for heaven that we forget, forget to grab a few hands along the way. So for those who are always going in the gospel, whether in their school or their job or their team or the church or anything else, if you ask them why they do it, then eventually you'll probably come across a few names. I love my job. I love working here. This is all the benefits that it provides for me. But also, there's this dude that I've been praying for. He's going through a really hard time. And I love my school. I love my classmates. I can't wait to see so-and-so because we just developed this relationship. And I've been inviting them to church and stuff. So I hope that this next school year that me and this person might actually be able to, you know, have a good relationship. And that might transpire into them, you know, coming to church with me and, and that kind of thing. You, you track it down, and there's going to be people involved. There's always people. This is the destination of those who are always going. It's, it's people. And I think Romans chapter 10, verses 13 through 15, preaches this whole sermon in about three sentences. And so listen to this. This is wonderful. It starts with our destination. It says, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone. That's our destination. This is our goal. This is the reason for our journey, that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord would be saved. Now, backtrack at the journey. It says in verse 14, how then can they call on him they have not believed in? Well, to call upon the name of the Lord, they must believe in the name of the Lord. Well, how can they believe without hearing about him? Well, if they're going to believe, then they need to hear the word somehow. And how can they hear without a preacher? Well, somebody's got to share the good news with them. And how can they preach unless they are sent? Well, if you're going to preach the good news to somebody, that means you understand that God has sent you into this world for that reason. You see the whole journey right here. This is our going. Destina- the destination is people. And it's only reached by those who embrace the gospel with intentionality because of their sincere love of Christ that proves itself in obedience. Whether that be, you know, come to sharing your faith with anyone or any other place of obedience that God calls you to, this is how we express our love. This is how we express our love. And the destination of our sharing faith is people. Whatever you have going on, as a great pastor, friend, and mentor, always used to say, people are not just the background to whatever you have going on. They're not just scenery like trees around here. They are the point and purpose of everything about you. The Bible talks about those who are weak and naked and burdened and in prison. And and Jesus says that when you serve these people, the least of these, that you serve me. The way that you actually love Jesus physically, tangibly, intentionally is through your hands and feet into the lives of other people. And to just live life bound to your own, the life you've created, going through the natural course of everything, school and you know, Work and, you know, buy a house, have some kids, fall away from church for a little bit, come back to church for a little bit, um, uh, you know, raise your kids, try to get them through school, try to get them to marriage without getting addicted to something or, you know, pregnant before their time. Like, just try to do all this, hit the beach a few times along the way, and man, what a life well lived. And that's slavery. That That is just being enslaved to the life that we've created. God wants so much more for you. Of course, these things are fine. There's going to be, we all have to play the part of the natural progression of things. We are in the culture that we are in. But man, it makes every bit of difference when we step into every ordinary place with the unordinary hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's the call and that's the charge of the Great Commission, to have that mindset. And you might be thinking, just like I was thinking this week, what the heck? This was far more than I bargained for on a Sunday morning. And I would say, yeah, I've felt that, and I also say he's done far more for us than any of us have bargained for, and he's totally worth it. And I'm also comfortable with this because I know few people respond to this. That's how it is with any any message, really. But I know that the few who respond to a message like this with, with humility will actually live out the Great Commission and probably do more for the gospel in greater ways than the many who are bound to their pride. They're stuck in tunnel vision. Their heads down, enslaved to the worldly lives that they've created, and they've already decide, decided. They've already decided that it's going to stay that way. It's hardness of heart. I know that. But if you're here and you are of the few who are humbled in your hearts and ready to take the next step in obedience, then I really want to just call you to prayer there's nothing here that I can manipulate or create for you. It's all in accordance with what the Lord has for you and what he wants to stir in your heart. And so here's some ways that you can pray and ask God uh, uh, to take all of this and, and to speak it into your hearts. And the first I'll say is this, to pray for awakening. Now, if you've been uh, for a believer for quite a while, then this is a reawakening, right? But if you're here and you've never known the love of Christ, you like this whole idea of like there's something beyond just my life that I can live for. There's a mission that can transcend into every place of my life. And you realize that you're broken and you realize that you need a sinner and you want to live for that greater thing. And you want to commit your life to Christ today, right? That's, that's your first awakening. You're ready to call upon the name of the Lord to believe in him that he is God, that he rose from the, gra- from the grave and that he can forgive your sins, But if you're here and you're like me and you've been a believer for a long time, then I fully know the struggles that you bear. I know how easy it is to walk in through these doors, heartless, careless about people, careless about the experience. Why? Because I've been doing it for 20 years. Routine and habit just happen at some times, and it's easy to get heartless in those seasons. And maybe the Lord is using today to rekindle your first love. To remind you of the Savior that you have and the life that he's called you to. And to never say can't when he's called you to obedience. You've got what you need in him. Second thing I would ask you to pray for is simply this. That we would not treat this as kind of like a God give me strength kind of situation. But that we would also take a harsh approach to our sin that through confession and repentance and seeking him for forgiveness, that we would acknowledge our sin for what it is, the sins of our heart, the clutter of our lives that have kept us from obeying him, the dullness of our our minds to to, to quickly just ignore any stirring he might be putting in our lives. These are sinful things, and they need to be addressed as sin, which means confessing to God, acknowledging your sin before him, repenting and saying, I need to turn from this. Will you give me everything I can? I, I need to turn from this. Taking a harsh approach to the sin in our lives. And then the third is this as we let the Lord do surgery on our own hearts, that we would also just pray for a burden for the lost. Burden is the word. We all have people in our lives who don't know Him. We all have people in our lives who need Him. And we need a burden. I think, you know, the days of kicking down people's front doors and yelling the gospel at them, sure, that might be fitting sometimes. But, you know, if you're close enough to people, life's going to give you every opportunity you need to share the gospel with people. Everybody's going through a pandemic or did. Everybody's going through loss. Everybody's going through financial crisis. Everybody's in a, a, you know, in, in a place of hurt. It makes them tender to receive hope. But we have to be accessible, and we have to be in proximity. We have to get close to their lives. We have to care. We have to listen well. We have to care more about them than we care about ourselves. We have to listen to them more than we're talking to them. We have to offer prayer. We have to invite them to Jesus Christ. You've got to be close to people. You've got to be in proximity. And we're only going to do this if we have a burden for that. And so uh, that's a great prayer point as well. And so what I want to do is I just want to pray these things over us today. I'll go back and get ready for baptism. We'll have a few minutes for you to just consult these things with the Lord. And let him do whatever he needs to do in your heart today. And then we'll enjoy some baptism together. So let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for your word, your kindness, your goodness. We're thankful for the gospel. God, apart from that, we we are nothing. And I pray every one of us, to a degree, would be rekindled this morning. Reignited. To serve you, follow you, share others, uh, share with others the hope um, of you. So Father, as you just work among us now, and as you speak to our hearts and minds, would you just incline us to obedience? Let us fall in love. Let us remember all that you've done for us. Let us remember who we were before you. And if there's anybody here who has never put their faith and trust in you, I pray that today would be a day that you would start that process. God, that they would begin to ask the hard questions, that they would seek the scriptures, that they would talk to godly people around them and get their answers that they need so that they might follow your lead in their hearts and, and believe upon you uh, for salvation. Would you do this work among them, Lord? And we're also very grateful uh, to celebrate baptism, celebrate those who are taking their initial act of obedience because they've been moved by, by a love they've never known before. Thank you for Christ. Thank you for all he has done for us, and it's in his beautiful name we pray. Amen. Next few minutes are yours.